you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 14. We're going to be looking this morning at a message uh, that I've entitled, Put It in Writing. Put it in writing, Acts chapter 15, I said 14, excuse me, Acts chapter 15, and we'll be in verses 22 through 35. Let's read what the Apostle Luke writes here in the book of Acts, just coming off of the last couple of weeks about the Jerusalem council, and then he writes this, verse 22, then it seems good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them that send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, Although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for your word that we have sung, thanking you for the scriptures that have been read, and thanking you for the opportunity to open up your word and explain and teach. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would enlighten us and that your spirit would convict us and that your spirit would bring clarity to what you have written here in this passage that you have put into writing a decision, an important decision that was made by the apostles and elders of the Jerusalem church about what it means to be truly saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as what it means about deferring to one another so that we might live in unity and in harmony as we observe various Christian liberties and things that we would would forego. So I pray that you would give us wisdom, you would give us grace as we study this together this morning, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, communication skills are vital to healthy, meaningful relationships. Often categorized as a soft skill or an interpersonal skill, communication is the act of sharing information from one person to another person or from one person to a group of people. And there are many different ways you can communicate to one another and it's an important, every single way is important. There's four main ways, if you will, of communication. If you study communication, that would be verbal communication, nonverbal communication, 
And then there is visual communication. And then what we'll be talking about today, written communication. Verbal communication is the use of language to transfer information through speaking or sign language. It is usually considered as the most common and the most efficient form of communication. That's when we talk to one another. Nonverbal communication is the use of body languages. Sometimes women are better at this than men. And sometimes men need to learn how to be better at this in a good, kind way, right? But we're just all talking about the body language, the gestures, the facial expressions that can communicate things to others. Nonverbal communication is helpful when trying to understand another's thoughts and feelings. And then I mentioned third, visual communication. It's the act of using photographs, art, drawings, sketches, as well as charts and graphs to share information. And visuals are often used as an aid when explaining things or giving a report in order to provide a context alongside of your verbal communication. The fourth kind of communication is written communication. And this is the act of writing typing or printing symbols, letters, and numbers to convey exact information. It is helpful because it provides a record of information for reference, clarity, and it can stand the test of time. God has chosen this form of written communication to reveal himself to you and me through his word. Now, we do have general revelation, the creation that God created, that, that screams out, there is a God in the heavens, declare the glories of God. But it's the special revelation of God's word that was written down for us to read that clearly proclaims what it is that God wants us to know about the perfect life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know when we talk about this kind of concept of written revelation, we're talking about 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And scripture is inspired by God. Scripture is inerrant. Scripture is infallible. Scripture is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. God put it in writing. Everything you need to know about his attributes God put it into writing. Everything that you need to know about Christ, God put it into writing. I mean, it would have been neat to have been there in the first century and actually see and interact with Jesus, but we weren't there, so he put it into writing. Everything you need to know about the Holy Spirit is put into writing. You don't have to have a service today and get all lathered up in emotion in order to feel the Spirit and to know more about the Spirit than God's already revealed to us in writing in his word. Everything you need to know about creation is written down for us in the Bible. Everything God wants you to know about the future, God put it into writing. Everything that God wants you to know about the present, God put it into writing. Everything that you need to know about God's will, he put it into writing. Everything that you need to know about life, God put it into writing. Everything that you need to know about faith and forgiveness and freedom from sin, God put into writing. Everything that you need to know about law, and about legalism, and about loving your neighbor, God put it into writing. And everything that you need to know about regeneration, and about redemption, and about adoption, God put into writing. The point is, the Jerusalem Council 
as we've been looking at this passage for the last couple of weeks, not only discussed the matter of what was required of Gentile believers, but they also thought it best to write it down. And not only them, but according to verse 28, look at Acts 15, 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. This is a reminder that the apostles and the elders were walking in the spirit and not walking in the flesh. They were being led by the Holy Spirit at this church council to record and write down for us exactly what God wants us to know. It wasn't just their own human wisdom. This was God's wisdom recorded for us. And so this way there could be no confusion on what was decided. Having a letter or a document to look back on would be the best way to both guard the information and to communicate the conclusion of the matter. And that's just true really in any formal institution. Our, our, our nation's constitution is written down. Our family traveled to D.C. a few years ago and were able to see the actual constitution recorded on paper. The, 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 the laws of this land are, are written down. The handbook that you use at work or the school you attend has some different guidelines that are written down. And these important documents always are written down, which brings us, again, it brings us a formality, it brings us a clarity, and it brings a binding authority. And so here in Acts chapter 15, we've been learning again about what happened at the Jerusalem council. The discussion had been on whether or not it was necessary for Gentile believers to be circumcised in order to be saved. Was it necessary for them to be circumcised and to obey the law of Moses in order to be considered true Christians? And this is a big deal for the early church. In fact, look up at verse 2, chapter 15, verse 2 says, after and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So this is not a small issue. This is a massive issue that has to do with what is the gospel and what will be required of Gentile believers so far as they come into the body of believers, what will be required of them? And so the church of Antioch was having this discussion. They sent Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem in order to discuss this. Verse seven says, and after there had been much debate, so when they arrive in Jerusalem, there's a pretty, a pretty hot debate about this whole subject. And then verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter made it clear, hey, we're saved by grace. We're not saved by works, we are saved by grace. And that same answer that Peter came to, Paul and Barnabas came to the same conclusion, James came to the same conclusion, as well as other apostles and elders, that it was salvation that would be by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Their conclusion could be clearly seen in verses 19 and 20, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So that's the conclusion of the matter. We're not going to trouble them with circumcision. We're not going to trouble them with following the old covenant anymore. It's good enough that they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's not trouble them, but we should, look at verse 20, we should write to them, to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And this leads into our message for today. They wanted to write it down. They wanted to put it into writing exactly what they discussed so that it would be clear to the believers in Antioch of what the decision that had 
come to what it would bear uh, meaning in their life. And that's exactly what they did. And so this morning, we're going to look at three headings in our sermon today that give us the outcome of the Jerusalem Council. Number one, we'll look at the faithful chosen leaders, verse 22. Then we'll look secondly at the first church letter, verses 23 to 29, and then we'll look at the favorable response of the believers there in Antioch, verses 30 through 35. Let's start with number one. Number one, the faithful chosen leaders, and the first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says the apostles and elders, the apostles and elders. And it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers. Now you know that when Jesus came to earth in his first advent, he chose 12 apostles. And those 12 men became his main disciples. And they had greater access to Christ than anyone else on earth. I mean, they, they traveled with Jesus and they ate with Jesus and they learned from him even when he wasn't out doing his public proclamation of the gospel. And on one particular occasion, when Jesus had gotten away on a retreat to Caesarea Philippi, just Jesus and the 12 disciples, he asked them in Matthew 16, verse 13. In fact, why don't you turn there with me, if you will. It's a familiar passage, but there's a point I want to tie in to what we're looking at when it says the apostles and the elders. What we're seeing is a transition in authority of the local church from the apostles because the apostolic office no longer exists. So we're seeing that transition going from the apostles to the elders. And so we see the authority that Jesus gave to the apostles when he said in verse 13, who do people say the son of man is? And some say John the Baptist, they answered. And some say Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, but who do you say that I am? And you remember Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a great declaration of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know who you are, Jesus. You are God's son. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the Christ. You are our savior. And he makes that statement and Jesus answered him, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. It's a reminder that it takes sovereign grace to save a soul from your sin. It takes sovereign grace to open your eyes to the depravity of your soul and to be able to see Christ in all of his glory and to realize that you need Christ and his sacrifice in order for you to be forgiven and to have new life. And then Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so we're reminded that it's Peter's confession, not Peter himself, but his confession, you are the Christ, I will build my church on that doctrine. I will build my church on Jesus Christ, and I will build my church in such a way that nothing will ever be able to dismantle it. No, 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 no gates of hell will ever prevail against the church. And then notice verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying to Peter and the apostles, you guys have all authority. I'm giving you full authority to determine, and then he goes on, whatever you bind on earth, you could read that to say whatever you forbid on earth, and then he says, and it has already been bound in heaven. So if you forbid something on earth, it's already been forbidden in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, 
You could read that to say whatever you permit, whatever you permit on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, Peter and apostles, you guys have a responsibility. And your responsibility is to wield the authority that I'm giving to you to determine who's in and who's out of the church. The church is going to continue, and you boys have to decide who's in and who's out, which means you'll need to delineate on doctrinal issues about what is required and what's not required for saving faith. At this particular time, the Judaizers had come to Antioch saying, in verse 1, you got to be circumcised to be a Christian. And they're like, well, wait a second. Jesus never taught circumcision. Why are these Judaizers requiring us to be circumcised to be saved? So they sent Paul and Barnabas to, is to uh, Jerusalem. They have the council, and now the letter is going to come back to them. And it's just a reminder that this letter is formed. Go back, if you will, to Acts uh, 15 verse 22 it's formed by who the apostles and the elders so I just want to remind you that office of authority given to the apostles is now also transitioning because why because one day these apostles are going to be dead and gone and since the apostolic office doesn't continue they needed to pass on that mantle of authority and responsibility to the elders of the local church and so the apostles have been given that authority by Christ to determine who's in and who's not. And now the apostles are responsible for passing that authority to the elders. It's similar to what we read uh, about this in Titus chapter one, verse five. You might remember where Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete. He tells Titus that, so that you might uh, put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So we understand we're going from apostles, Paul is an apostle, to Titus, who was a disciple and an elder, and he had told him to appoint elders in Crete. Peter, an apostle, also refers to this concept in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, when he says, so I exhort the elders among you as a, he could have said, as an apostle. But if you remember that passage, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So Paul's saying, hey, I have the office of apostleship, but I also have the responsibility in the office of an elder. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So again, Peter's an apostle. He's also an elder. And the responsibility of an elder couldn't be more clear. The elders were to shepherd the flock, which means they are to teach to lead and to protect the sheep. And the elders were to exercise oversight, which means they are to govern, to oversee, and they are ultimately responsible for everything that takes place in the church. And so while it was the apostles and the elders that God placed in charge back in Acts 22, 15, 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. So please note that the apostles and the elders did not move forward without the whole church being together with them. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church. What we see here is an incredible picture of unity. We see a beautiful harmony that when everybody's looking at Christ and looking at scripture, there's no fighting and dissension about key doctrinal issues. We're all together on this. We all believe what Christ taught. We all believe what the scriptures say. And so they saw incredible unity. The whole church was behind them, supporting them, in a sense, affirming them in what they were doing. It was indeed a biblical thing. It was indeed from the Lord. Elders are ultimately accountable to the Lord, but faithful believers in the body of the church are also to pray for them, to support them, and to hold them accountable 
to do what it is God's called them to do. So that's what we see happening here. Incredible unity coming together in the decision that's been made in the Jerusalem council. And so that now needs to be communicated in the form of a letter. So we see a special focus next on your next blank, Paul and Barnabas. So in light of this, we're gonna send out, we're gonna choose men from among them to go back to Antioch together with Paul and Barnabas. So again, the apostles and the elders wanted to send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch, but they also wanted to send them with other godly men. And they wanted to make sure that there was a whole delegation from the church in Jerusalem so that the church in Antioch would have no doubts that Paul and Barnabas were actually reporting accurately on the decision that was made by the Jerusalem council. And then we are introduced to two of these guys, your next blank, Judas and Silas. Judas and Silas, it says they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers. And so while Paul and Barnabas were, of course, very public champions of grace in this matter, the council decided to send along with them these two other witnesses that they were to objectively verify that the decision was both authentic and unanimous. And the names here given are Judas and Barsabbas. Notice how it says that. It says they sent Judas called Barsabbas. That's one man, Judas, also called Barsabbas. These are both Greek names for uh, the the well-known Jewish rendering. In Hebrew, it would would have been Judah, the son of the Sabbath. And in Greek, it's just Judas Barsabbas. Uh, All we know about him is that he may have been the brother of Joseph, also called Barsabbas or Justice, who was actually one of the two candidates put, before, uh, put forward to become the 12th apostle. We don't really know a lot about Judas other than he's a, he's a godly man. The apostles and elders decided to send Judas, again, not Iscariot, but Judas Barsabbas together with Silas. We know a little bit more about Silas. His, his other name is Silvanius, and he is uh, accompanying uh, Paul in his second missionary journey In fact, Acts 15, look down to verse 40. It says, Paul chose Silas and departed. And so we understand that Silas is gonna be a part of the team there with Paul on his next missionary journey. Later, Silas became Peter's amenuesis or scribe as it is mentioned in 1 Peter 5.12. Silas was a Roman citizen and presumably a Gentile while Judas was a Hebrew. And that's interesting and a blessing because you have one believing Roman Gentile and one believing Hebrew Jew who are both representing the church of Jerusalem in this matter, which was a debate between the believing Jews and Gentiles in Antioch. And so we see here the faithful chosen leaders that are picked by the apostles and elders to represent their decision of the Jerusalem council. So we have some faithful men here who are going to carry this letter and give some extra information together with it. Let's look at number two if we can. We're looking again at three observations we can make of the outcome of the Jerusalem council. So number two, you have the first church letter. Well, here we are. There's a whole lot of letters written in the church, right? And we have the first formal church letter that we get to examine together this morning. Your next blank says a word of greeting. A word of greeting, verse 23. That's how most of the letters in the, in the Bible start, with some type of greeting. So they're going to send them to Antioch with the following letter, verse 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, Greetings. Again, most of the books in the New Testament are epistles, 
which simply means letters. You know, and as a kid growing up, there's always the joke that you have the, uh, the apostles and the epistles, and the epistles must have been the apostles' wives. Well, that's not how it works, all right? You have the apostles, and they wrote letters, and the letters that they wrote are sometimes referred to as epistles. They're just letters. It's the first one recorded for us in Scripture as a clear letter written down. We have other letters, like the letter to the Galatians, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians, the letters to Colossae, so forth and so on, that are written to a particular church in a particular area. You also have letters that are written to particular people, like First and Second Timothy in the book of Titus. And you have letters which bear the name of the author of the letter, like First and Second Peter, James, First and Second, Third John. So this letter, though, was written by the apostles and the elders together with the Holy Spirit inspiring this, as we already saw in verse 28. It's the Holy Spirit that, that, that inspired this letter. It's not just a human letter. This is a divine letter that was written by the brothers, and it was written down to the brothers who were Gentiles in Antioch, which is located in Syria and the surrounding area of Cilicia, all there in the same area just north and a little bit east of Jerusalem. That's where they're writing to, which is that first place where Christians were called Christians there at Antioch. It was the home base of Paul's missionary journeys, an incredible city with the, a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers. So they're writing the letter, and we see the greetings there. And then next, you see a word of guidance, a word of guidance. And so now he gets after it, verses 24 to 27, after greeting them and clarifying who's writing to who. He says in verses 24 to 27, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. So he's just giving a little bit more preliminary information. He's like, hey, I got to write a letter to you. And the reason I'm writing this letter is because there were some people who came to you and taught things that were not authorized by us. And so we're writing this letter to clarify this to you. If I look back at verse one, this is what he's talking about. Remember, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that's why the Jerusalem council happened. Now the letter's written, the letter is sent back to Antioch and say, we wanna address this. And verse 24 is clarifying that this was not the teaching of the Jerusalem church, that the teaching from the previous Judaizers was also very disturbing. You see that there in verse 24 when he says, hey, when those guys came and taught, they, they troubled you. That could be translated that they disturbed you. The word literally means to be deeply upset the word means to deeply disturb, to perplex. It can mean to create fear. So when these guys came up and they said, oh, 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 you guys came to Christ? That's great, but you got to be circumcised. And all of a sudden, the new Gentile believers are like, whoa, wait, wait, what? We have to do what? And they began to be uncomfortable, perplexed, confused, and it even brought fear and agitation. Sometimes it's translated as agitated like it is in John 14, 1, when Jesus told the disciples that he would soon be leaving them. They became fearful, a little bit agitated, trying to understand what's going on. The word for troubled here is also used in Galatians 1, 7 in the same context of false teachers. Galatians 1, 7 says that they're there, to, you know, supposed to be adhering to the gospel, not to forsake the gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So the Judaizers were doing the same thing in Galatia. They're trying to trouble you. And it brought this very difficult feeling. And so the false teachers were troubling the believers. 
How? By preaching a different gospel. Or they're preaching a gospel of works. They're preaching a gospel of law. They're preaching a gospel of following the old covenant. Well, this teaching, again, verse 24, was very unsettling to these new believers in Antioch. So not only did it trouble them, but they, it unsettled them. The word there for unsettling appears only here in the New Testament, which always means that's an important observation to say, man, in the whole New Testament, God used this one word in this one place to describe for us in verse 24 how unsettling they were in their minds. They were troubled, but it's more than that. They were unsettled, and you have to go into some extra biblical Greek in order to see applications of this word unsettling, and it's found to describe those who are bankrupt. This is what's going on. They thought they had Christ. They thought they had salvation in the bank, but now they don't because they haven't been circumcised and they're not obeying the Mosaic law. So now they're feeling like, well, we're bankrupt. Well, if we don't have these other things in the bank, the, the word can also be used to talk about a, a military force that would plunder a town. So if you imagine a military force, just think about those ISIS forces that we unfortunately have read about and seen videos of in years past who would go into a town and just plunder the whole town. That's very unsettling. You're ripping out the heart of the town. It's a very strong word to to be bankrupt. I mean, have you ever gone online to check your bank, uh, your bank, uh, your bank statement to see how much money you had in there? How many of you ever seen in your bank statement, the bottom line, all of a sudden one day turn red? happened to me where all of a sudden I'm like what you know and you start to freak out right you had that feeling if you're like I don't have any money in the bank right now and that happens to college students all the time as you get a little bit older hopefully it doesn't happen very often or hopefully you have some other account somewhere where you're like oh let me pull some of this put it in here right otherwise I'm doomed and this is how they're feeling they're feeling like I'm doomed because I don't have salvation it's very unsettling It's the fear of, I don't have enough. I haven't done enough. I haven't achieved enough. I have to work harder to earn more capital to put in my spiritual bank so that I can be safe with God. That's how how troubling and unsettling this, this legalistic doctrine was to these new believing Gentiles. And so in verse 25, it seems good to us. So they, they're saying, hey, these guys came in. We gave them no instructions. We didn't authorize it. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you for our, our, to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So they say, hey, we want to address this. We've had a discussion. We've come to a conclusion. We're unanimous. We are all together, lockstep together, and we've made a decision, and now that decision is going to be communicated to you through this letter that presents a clear message, and this message is that salvation is based on Christ and Christ alone. That's, that's, that's what's behind the message. Now, I find it interesting, when you read the letter, the letter doesn't actually say that. The letter that we're reading that started in verse 24 and ends in verse 29 does not say salvation is by grace alone. It's not what the letter says. So it's understood that that had already been accomplished in all of the previous communication and ongoing discussion about this multiple times. Remember, Antioch has been a church since Acts 11. And Peter has already gone to Jerusalem once explaining that these believers are legitimate in Antioch 
And so this is now being addressed again. It's almost like this conflict is surfacing up again. And so they're saying to them, hey, we want to talk about this. We, we have one accord. We're sending Barnabas and Paul, verse 26, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's just kind of saying, hey, Paul and Barnabas, you need to listen to them. They have been preaching the true gospel for years. And they have risked their lives for the message of grace, not for a message of legalism. So you need to listen to what they're saying because they have poured out their lives as a drink offering. So you ought to listen to what they have to say and you need to follow the example here of what Paul and Barnabas did. They followed in the steps of Christ. They, they were willing to be stoned. Remember, Paul was stoned and left for dead. They risked their lives. They, they did it for the name of Christ. They didn't do it for circumcision. They didn't do it for Moses. They didn't do it for Abraham. They didn't do it for King David. They did it for King Jesus. And they said, we will give our lives for this message. We will bleed and die so that it's crystal clear that everybody for all time will know that you're saved by grace through faith. And they're telling them, don't buy this legalism. And with this in mind, it's understood again, the emphasis here, you need to hear what these men have to say. They are real bona fide, legitimate Christ followers who have something to say. And not only do you have Paul and Barnabas, but remember Judas and Silas, Judas Barsabbas and Silas were also there to tell them the same things by word of mouth. That's why verse 27 says, we have therefore sent not only Paul and Barnabas, who you know, who've risked their lives for the gospel and for Christ, but we sent Judas and Silas who th themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. Remember, one believing Jew, one believing Gentile together from Jerusalem are also going to bring the same affirmation that the church of Jerusalem was 100% behind Paul and Barnabas. So after they give a little bit of a word of guidance, then they get to the real meat of the letter, which is your next blank, a word of government, a word of government. And all I mean by that is how will the new believer's life be governed by what particulars must a believer adhere to and what can they forego as far as circumcision and the Mosaic covenant is concerned as new believers. And so verses 28 and 29 says, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. So we could just pause right there. When he says to lay on you no greater burden, he's saying the gospel is free. There is no burden of the gospel. And yet there is a burden to maintain unity in the church. The gospel is accomplished by Christ alone. We've been preaching on this for weeks. But when it comes to maintaining the unity of the body, then that requires a burden. So he says to him in verse 28, hey, look, we're not going to lay a greater burden on you in order to be saved is what's being inferred. But we are asking you into verse 28 to adhere to these requirements. There's a few things we want you to do. So we're, gospel is clear, but there's a couple things we want you to do. Verse 29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. Now the council, again, did not offer a lengthy defense for the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in this particular letter. Neither did this short letter point to specifically the issue of circumcision. Though it's understood the context, that's all part of the argument. The Jerusalem church did recognize 
that salvation was by grace, but this particular letter was to clarify that the Judaizers who came to cause trouble were not authorized, and therefore the original preaching of the gospel in Antioch stands unaltered and unhindered. And the church leaders did, however, feel compelled by the Holy Spirit. Please understand the Holy Spirit as it worked in this exact four prohibitions, three of them, Uh, that are given, one of them is like a double prohibition. What what does he list here in verse 29? Do not offend the Jewish Christians by eating meat sacrificed to idols. Do not eat meat that had been strangled and filled with blood and do not commit any form of sexual immorality. We talked about it last week, but since it's in our text for today, let me just quickly review it for you. The three things that they asked the new believers to follow. Number one, again, it's in your outline. Number one, do not offend Jewish Christians by eating meat sacrificed to idols. Please remember that it was idol worship in the Old Testament that led the Israelites away from God. And when idols were introduced by pagan nations and when they were tempted to worship and intermarry with pagan nations, Jewish, good Jewish people fell into the temptation of worshiping these idols. And in 2 Kings 17.10, We're told that they set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. So they're building idols and temples to idols. And there they made offerings to all the high places as the nations did whom God carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. So the believing Jews in the New Testament remembered that. They're like, look, man, our nation has gotten to a heap of trouble. We spent 70 years in exile because we did idol worship and we didn't observe the Sabbath properly to worship God and him alone. And so we are not about to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. And that was where they stood. And the Gentiles were like, well, can't we eat this meat sacrificed to the idols? And you remember, I told you last week, that it is addressed a little bit later, 1 Corinthians 8, Romans chapter 14, that you can eat meat sacrificed to an idol. So that freedom's coming, but not yet. Not yet, it's too early. In the maturity of the church, for these believing Gentiles and believing Jews needed to foster an important unity and to abstain from certain particulars that would divide them. And so under the Holy Spirit's inspiring authority, the apostles and the elders write this letter and say, hey, look, for right now, we are asking you not to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. And, and you know what? I think it's interesting in verse uh, 20, uh, 28 where it says, you know what? It is a burden. The gospel's not a burden, but it is a burden to forego certain freedoms. That's what he's saying. He said, you know what? It is a burden. In fact, the word burden pictures someone perpetually carrying an additional weight in any decision to give up a freedom for the greater good of another is a burden. But this burden was not a burden to be carried in order to earn salvation, but rather a burden to be carried in order to pursue unity. So these provisions were not essential in salvation, but they were essential to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we asked them, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols for right now. 
Secondly, he said, don't eat meat. Number two, don't eat meat that had been strangled and filled with blood. I told you last week, this restriction was originally given by Noah in the Mosaic, before the Mosaic law was ever given. It was given by Noah in Genesis 9, verse 4. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Again, in Leviticus 17, 11, verses, uh, Leviticus chapter 17, verses 11 and 12. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And we say, well, why is that a big deal? That's a picture of the atonement. The atonement was pictured or foreshadowed by a symbol of an animal sacrifice. The animal was supposed to be brought into the temple and to have its throat slit. And as the animal is dying, its blood is draining out. And that is a life sacrifice that's to point to the fact that Jesus gave his life even while he was alive and bleeding and he gave up himself as a sacrifice to fulfill God's holy law. So this particular issue has something to do with the atoning sacrifice was for God, not for us. And for a person to strangle an animal, then to eat the animal without the blood being properly drained was to defile this picture. It was to be like, you know what? I'm not gonna follow that whole system. I'm gonna strangle and eat. I told you last week, you can still eat rare steak. Somebody say, praise God. Okay, you can eat sushi, nothing in here about fish. All right, so it's not necessarily like that kind of issue. It's a picture saying that this pagan practice of strangling and eating meat is like completely undisciplined and completely foregoes the picture by which it was intended to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so some would say, because that was originally given in Genesis 9, doubled down in Leviticus 17, that that still applies for today. That that particular thing, it's not that we struggle with that in our culture, but in some cultures, there may be where that practice would continue. And it has been argued by many commentators that, you know what, since that was not overturned somewhere in the New Testament, I think you should still abide by it. So that would be an interesting discussion. Let's move on. The third prohibition that was given, number three, do not commit any form of sexual immorality. And we know this one for sure has continued until this very day and until Christ comes back. The, the word here for sexual immorality describes sexual sin in general. And it refers to all forms of sexual sin. And you have to understand in this particular context, there was a whole lot of sexual sin happening at the pagan temples as an act of worship as they would sleep with priestesses and priests in a very gross and sexually sinful way. And it was an integral part of Gentile worship. And so Paul said, hey, yes, you can't do that. Like zero, like nada, nothing. You can have nothing to do with that. And that's why Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 6, 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Again, this issue has a moral, um, a moral picture to it, but it's meant to be maintained throughout the Old and the New Testament alike, which is just a reminder for us today that sex, any sex, outside of marriage is a sin. Homosexual sex is a sin. 
transgenderism is a sin. Bestiality is a sin. Any form of sexual sin, even if it's you lusting in your mind, according to Christ, is a sin. And he's specifically saying this to this group to say, so don't do that around the acts of worship with these other pagans because it's a serious sin against God. So at the end of verse 29, he then says, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. So he's saying this letter has now answered the doctrinal question raised by the Antioch church and has given great wisdom of how to avoid division in the fellowship of Jewish and Gentile believers. All right, how about a little bit more application? Can I give you a little bit more? Before we go on, let me give you three lessons learned from the conflict. Here's three lessons that could be learned really from any conflict. Got this out of a commentary. I thought it was uh, helpful, so I recorded it down and I wanted to share it with you. Number one, conflict is inevitable, expect it. When you have conflict at church or at home, it's inevitable. You live in the world or you live in a fallen world. Conflict is inevitable. Expect it. Issues that we have already settled will resurface. You ever found that in your life? You thought you resolved an issue. You thought it was done. Hey, salvation is by grace alone, faith alone in Christ. Why are we doing this? Or on any other issue in your marriage, with your kids. Hey, we've talked about this. Why is this resurfacing? In this particular context, surely the Gentile believers in the growing church of Jerusalem and Antioch thought this had already been dealt with, but here they are facing it again. Even people who should get along with each other will knock heads once in a while. Good-hearted, capable people will sometimes arrive at a completely different conclusion. But the church should not be characterized by contention. Harmony should be the rule not the exception. Second lesson that you can learn from this, number two, no conflict is ever easy, endure it. Conflict is always unpleasant and it's always difficult. Conflict brings out the worst in everybody. Unfortunately, many times we try to end a disagreement by any means possible rather than let constructive conflicts run their course. Difficult as it may feel, we still need to maintain order and keep our attitude right by maintaining mutual respect and unconditional love. You know what I'm saying? You got to talk it out. You got a conflict at home. Your wife is upset at you. You're upset at your wife. You got a kid storming up to the bedroom over some issue about modesty or playing video games or whatever else is going on in your home. You better talk it out. Conflict is inevitable. And you shouldn't march up there and be like, well, we talked about this a hundred times, as I have done many times. <laughs> Don't follow me. You, know, you should walk up there and say, hey, you know what? We got to work through this. I love you. And I know that you say that you love me and love the Lord, so we have to work this out. And this is what they're doing in the church. They're like, we got to work this out. We can't just be flippantly, like we already decided that back in Acts 11, so we're in Acts 15. So you know, let's talk about it. Let's, let's interact on it. Let's go back to God's word on this issue. Let's endure through this. And it, it takes some work. You can't run from the conflict. You got to run to the conflict, roll up your sleeves, open your Bible, ask God to give you patience, speak with, with, with language that's seasoned with, with salt and full of grace and resolve the issue. 
And that's what they're doing. We, we, we're, we gotta trust the process enough to know that if we are communicating biblically, that we can work through our difficulties and come to the same uh, conclusion if you're both Christians. Uh, obviously, if the other person's not a Christian, you're just not gonna resolve and be reconciled fully. I mean, all you can do is as far as it depends on me, Romans 12, you do what you can, but it's not gonna be reconciled. But if you're Christians, don't stop till you're reconciled. Don't stop, keep fighting for it. Number three, third lesson to learn from conflict is any conflict can benefit the people involved. Enjoy it. How about that? That was my word. The commentary said something else, but I'm like, ah, I'm going to change that one. I'm going to make it stick just a little bit harder. Enjoy it. What do I mean by that? I mean, enjoy the fruit that a conflict can bring about when you resolve it biblically. If two people are reconciled, then their relationship can be even stronger. If the church leadership works through a difficult matter, it can be an encouraging example for the body. A conflict is a trial, and trials are supposed to make us more like Jesus. So the good thing that comes out of conflict is it refines you, because we know Romans 8, 28, that, that all things work together. God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose and those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. So the good that comes out of conflict is God's using conflict to make you more like Christ, to clarify the issue, to bring grace to the issue, to bring love and, and, and unity to the issue if both parties are willing to follow and submit to scripture and to what the Holy Spirit says through his word. And in fact, in doing that, we are to James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy. My brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness may have its full effect, let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we're simply saying, look, conflict can benefit the people involved, enjoy it. Look for the good in it. How thankful are we today that God recorded this conflict for us in scripture? It's a massive conflict, fully recorded in scripture. This letter is now given so that we can learn from and apply God's word. And I'm so thankful that God put it into writing. So we've seen the faithful chosen leaders, number one. Number two, we've seen the first church letter. We've just read it in its entirety. And then number three, let's look at the favorable response, verses 30 to 35. How do the new believers there in Antioch respond to this? Well, A says they're rejoicing, rejoicing in the clarity of the gospel, verses 30 and 31. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Again, the delegation were sent off, these men from Jerusalem to Antioch. They got there, they gathered everybody together. We're gonna have a church meeting. We're gonna all meet together. We're gonna read the letter. They delivered it, the letter was read and no doubt the church of Antioch was eager to hear the apostles' decision. Would they have to get circumcised? Would they have to obey all the Mosaic law? When they read the letter, the Gentile believers rejoiced because of its encouragement. Again, why are they rejoicing? They're rejoicing because they were encouraged that, that they no longer needed to fear that salvation uh, that they had already received was somehow not genuine. They rejoiced because they understood now, I have freedom in Christ to, to, to base my salvation solely on scripture, not on these other things, 
Because the truth is, legal, legalism, which is what the Judaizers were pushing, legalism produces fear. Have I done enough? Legalism produces guilt. Oh, you should have obeyed this law, but you didn't. Legalism produces pride. Oh, you're not circumcised like us, so you're not a real Christian. That's what legalism does. But when you preach grace and preach the scripture, it brings comfort and it brings hope. So they're rejoicing because of the grace that had been shared with them. Like Titus 3, 5 through 7 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, there's that rejoicing of like, all right, let's just get back. This is what the gospel's about. And these other things we're going to follow out of our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But at least they were rejoicing in the clarity of this letter. Not only that, they are encouraging strength. There's encouraging strength drawn from others. Be there. Encouraging strength drawn from others. Verse 32 says that, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So in addition to the letter, the two other delegates wanted to also preach, share, talk, interact, communicate, verbal communication, and they themselves were prophets, so they're adding uh, not their own words, but prophetic words to this particular document. No doubt they doubled down on a gospel of grace, not law, as well as giving further encouragement. They exhorted and built up the brothers in the faith in the spirit of First Thess 5.11 that says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Just as you were doing, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. That's the spirit by which Judas and, and uh, Silas come and began to also encourage them. And then look at verse 33, or your next blank says, achieving unity and peace among the brothers. Verse 33 achieving unity and peace among the brothers. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. And so again, we see unity and peace have been achieved through the letter and through the preaching of the word and just, just teaching. Well, let me just say this, just teaching and preaching the Bible promotes peace and harmony. It's when you teach and preach something else in addition to the, to the Bible that you introduce some type of legalistic concept that brings about division. And so as long as they're preaching the truth, then peace and harmony are going to be uh, found. And this is the spirit again, which Paul says in Acts 20, 32, he says, and I now commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. So he's saying that to the Ephesian elders, but he's saying, hey, look, you just take the word of grace. That's what's gonna build you up. It's not about where we differ. It's about what we see God's word say and we join and rally behind scripture. And so due to that fact, everybody is completely on the same page. And the Antioch brothers are now able to send Judas and Silas back to the brothers in Jerusalem. They have been greatly blessed by their visit and now they are sending them back in good faith. All right, verse 34. There is a verse 34, which is not contained in the best manuscripts. So it's left out of the NASB and the ESV and the other literary, literal translations. And so that's not part of what we believe would be original scripture. But verse 35, that's why your Bible says verse 33. And then it says verse 35. So in verse 35, your next blank says, continuing the preaching and teaching of the word. 
continuing the preaching and teaching of the word. Verse 35, it says here, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And so Paul and Barnabas, really, they just pick up where they left off. They continued their ministry of teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. And now that this issue has been settled once and for all, it was time to continue to preach the full counsel of God's word. And so their teaching made it clear that salvation is by grace alone. And many others even joined them in proclaiming this liberating message of salvation by grace. And so the apostolic church did survive the greatest challenge it had to date. But from this challenge, there arose an even greater appreciation of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What we see here is Satan's attempt to inject heretical teaching, that attempt was thwarted. And so also his attempt to split the church along racial and cultural lines, that attempt was thwarted. And with this, this vitality uh, of the truth being preached and the salvation being made clear, it now safeguarded the church and the church experienced greater days of ministry than ever before. There has always been and there always will be just one way of salvation. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why John fourteen six says, Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Only one way to be saved. It's not about your heritage, not about your church, not about your soapbox, not about your particulars. It's about scripture. It's about grace. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's a a little more application I'm going to give you in this take-home section. Let's look at this. Legalism results in an emphasis on works. Legalism results in an emphasis on works. The Jerusalem Council recognized that any addition to grace, regardless of how small or seemingly insignificant, not only pollutes the gospel, but it opens the door to the same kind of legalism that characterized the Pharisees and their effort to keep their own man-made laws. And we see this today with some of us as people in today's world, when we might be tempted with legalistic thoughts, like unless you are baptized, you cannot be saved. Some churches teach that. Or if you don't speak in tongues, you can't be saved. There are some people who teach that. Or for our context today, you may think you're more spiritual. We're talking here about legalism. It has an emphasis on works. In our context today, you may think you're more spiritual if you homeschool. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, watch out. If you, drink, or if you don't drink any alcohol. Or you might think you're more spiritual if you come to a quipping hour. Or if you join a small group which you should. (laughs) Or if you only watch Christian movies or dress a certain way or eat a certain way or worship a certain way. And so where we have to be careful, where we might struggle with legalism in the sense of circumcision, we struggle with it in these other areas. And I'm asking you to apply these same principles to say, hey, I need to be careful that as a believer, I'm not allowing certain freedoms certain things, certain preferences to enter into my family, to my heart, to my church and rip this church apart because you want the church to be known as a certain way and we want the church to be known as a gospel preaching stand on the Bible church. You understand what I'm saying? We're standing on the Bible, not a political party, 
We're standing on the word of God. And so we got to fight for the fact that legalism sometimes results in an emphasis on works. And when that happens, it ruins and wrecks the fellowship of the church. It creates fear. It thrives on guilt. It creates hopelessness. While grace thrives on love. The love for Christ and appreciation for grace drives out fear and inspires hope which is a confident expectation of our future victory over sin and death. Let me give you a second application. Number two, license results in an emphasis on self. So I'm using the word license to mean a freedom. You have a license, you have a freedom to do whatever, but if you focus on license, then that's going to result in an emphasis on self. License is an attitude that says, because of grace, I can do as I please without consequences. An attitude of license reveals the true object of your love. People who truly understand the meaning of grace, however, cannot help but love the God who saved them. People who see grace as a license to sin merely reveal their deep love for sin rather than for God and for their neighbor. Just as Jesus stated, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the same is true of any sin. You cannot serve freedom when the freedom may lead to a sin, even if that sin is you becoming a stumbling block to your neighbor. So if legalism focuses on works and license focuses on yourself, then what we want to do is move to number three. We want to move to grace, which results on an emphasis on Christ. That's where the emphasis is. It's not on you. It's not on me. It's not on your particulars, my particulars. If license reveals a love for sin and self, a true understanding of grace leads ever an ever-increasing love for the Lord and an ever-deepening commitment to his ways. The inevitable impact of grace is love for others. Fortunately, grace does not leave us alone to love and obey out of our own strength. The grace of God carries us beyond the moment of salvation to equip us for supernatural love and obedience. And we bear the burden, remember that's the word used in the text, we bear the burden of restricting our freedom for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. But we do not bear the burden without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us power, gives us clarity, brings us to the scripture, opens up the word, makes it more understandable in our hearts and our lives. We fight for the gospel by grace alone, and we also fight to love one another with all of our particulars in a way that would promote the beauty of unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, after we close in our last song, we wanna invite you to come up. We have a a couple of people who'll be standing right here by this door. You're here this morning. Maybe you're coming from a legalistic background. Maybe you've been facing a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and you don't know how to get out. Let me tell you today, your way out is through Jesus. It's through his perfect life and his sacrifice and his resurrection that you must come to a place where you confess your sin before God. And you confess your own effort before God as a sin. And you just say, God, I can't do it. I cannot do it on my own. I need grace. I've been focusing on the law too much. And the law has a purpose. It's to make you feel guilty and to push you towards the Lord Jesus Christ. 
so that you can understand that saving faith comes through Christ and him alone. No matter who you are this morning, if you want to talk about what it means to be a true Christian by believing in Christ, you're welcome to come up at the end of our last song. If you're here this morning, we want to invite you as well. You're struggling in your heart just with the balance of some of these particulars and you recognize that something's got a hold of your life and you're a present day Judaizer. I want to invite you to come forward this morning. We'd love to counsel with you and to talk with you about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ from Scripture and how that applies in your life this very morning. Aren't you glad it's all written down? And we have an opportunity to study it, to understand it, and to, uh, to talk about it and share what we're discovering with one another even throughout this day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Jerusalem Council. Oh, how fun it is to study with great uh, emphasis on the scriptures, the arguments that were brought forth, the application in the immediate context, and how those timeless truths still bring application, still bring perspective, concepts, scriptural truths to bear in our life today. And I pray for us as a church, God, that we would never focus primarily on law, that we would never focus primarily on a license of the freedoms that that you give to us, but that we would focus primarily on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ when he gave his life for us, that we could have a new life in him. And so I pray that today as a church, God, give us that biblical balance. Help us to learn through our trials and our conflicts. Help us to endure and enjoy the fruit of resolving issues biblically in a way that would promote harmony and unity in the body and promote incredible joy and freedom to love you and to serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so be with us as we sing this final song, as we fellowship together today. I pray Christ would be exalted in our hearts, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.